and welcome to the Farmers I Know podcast. I'm Carolyn Hershon. This is the show dedicated to people growing food to nourish their communities. The Farmers I Know let their values on how the earth and people should be treated lead the way. This episode, we head to West Virginia to learn about cultivating mushrooms. I was on my way to see a few friends in the most western part of West Virginia, and I had an interview planned with one of their friends that runs a farm in Fayetteville. I decided to see if there were any other farmers that looked cool that were on the way. I stumbled upon Peasant Parcel, a mushroom farm in Paw, Paw West Virginia. It's a family-run business operated by Sharon Briggs and her wife. They met in college where they shared an interest in mushroom cultivation. But Sharon says that when they moved back to West Virginia to start their own business, they were hesitant to go all in on mushroom farming. And that's mostly because I didn't think that mushroom farming was feasible financially and uh, as far as being a sustainable business. And then I slowly watched the innovation in the industry and that led us to believe and have confidence that we could really do it in a way that was sustainable, that was financially uh, possible, and that could really be successful in this area. Cool. Why was it so important for you to grow mushrooms sustainably? I guess also I'm wondering what the difference between a more conventional mushroom operation would be and a sustainable mushroom operation and why you value being a more sustainable one. So as you've seen to here, we have a lab, we have a very, growing mushrooms requires a lot of science and a lot of equipment and mushrooms are grown, uh, the varieties that we grow, are largely grown in plastic. Um, and until recent years, the technology of compostable and biodegradable plastics hasn't really been there. Now it is. Um, we also have come a long way in microremediation or the ability to train mushroom strains to eat certain toxins like plastic. Uh, and that's something we actually are experimenting with here as well. So when we think of a conventional mushroom farm, we probably think of a button mushroom farm, mm -hmm. which is a pretty wasteful environment in itself. It's just these large factories. It's much more industrial. Um, however, most of the uh, gourmet mushroom farms, even the small ones, uh, until recently only had the option to use an insane amount of plastic bags to grow their mushrooms in. Um, there are systems where you can use buckets and reuse them, but I've never met anybody who's done that successfully without having a lot of contamination and it doesn't scale up very well. Uh, so the technology and the science as far as biodegradables has come into place and um, also because we are an off-grid farm, uh, the solar technology has come to a place where we can run this whole facility on solar and as we grow we'll be able to supplement with more solar and hydroelectric we can walk up this way okay great so we'll pop in here on the cool. other side over here is our solar panel array that just feeds into the back of the building and i can show you where our solar controller is inside wow that's so cool all right this uh kind of big outdoor carport is where we do a lot of our substrate prep. We grow our mushrooms on both sterilized medias and on um, 
pasteurized mediums mm-hmm. or substrates. So we grow on straw, pasteurized, and we grow on sawdust that is supplemented with gypsum and other things, mm-hmm. and that has to be sterilized. Okay. So we do a lot of our uh, pasteurized work out here. We just picked up this big grain bin that we couldn't resist beside the road. <laughs> and we'll That's be awesome. adding a pneumatic arm to that in the future, so it will... Uh, be able to give us an exact weight of amount of substrate into the grow bags that we use. Very cool. Could you explain those two, the difference between those two types of how you grow them? Like, are there different types of mushrooms you can grow one way or the other? Yeah, just like uh, any other plant or creature, uh, mushrooms prefer to eat certain things, different strains. So some mushrooms will only grow on wood and most of those prefer hardwoods and other mushrooms are a little more aggressive and they will grow on almost anything. Mm -hmm. Uh, You may see online people growing oyster mushrooms on used toilet paper rolls, on cardboard. Um, That's because oyster mushrooms have a very strong mycelium and they're just aggressive. They wanna live, they wanna grow. Uh, Some other mushrooms are much more delicate. Um, So things like lion's manes and shiitake will really only grow on hardwoods. Um, for those to grow and not have competitive fungi, which is kind of fungi and bacteria are all around us, uh, their substrates need to be sterilized so that they really have a good environment to go in and they're the only thing there to inoculate or grow in that environment. Amazing. And could you also explain what mycelium is? So. Often we will say mycelium is kind of like the root network of a mushroom. And that's just because that's uh, that's a way to correlate it easily. But a lot of mycologists hate that um, analogy because it isn't really accurate. But I think we just have to think and keep in mind that fungi are a whole different category. They are not plants, they are not animals, they are in between. So really almost any analogy you can make to plant or animal life doesn't work on a one-to-one basis. But the mycelium is this white stuff that is growing underneath of the ground or inside of a tree. And it spreads and it, when it thinks the conditions are right, it produces a point where a mushroom will, will fruit. Thank you so much. That was a great explanation. Thank you. Because <laughs> I think a lot of people don't know that it's not a plant or an animal. I mean, I was definitely shocked to learn that. Yeah. Why are fungi their own thing? How are they different from animals and plants? Well, the main way they distinguish is based on how they get their nutrients. There are exceptions to this, but generally speaking, plants create their own using the sun, and animals eat and digest nutrients internally. Fungi don't do either of those things. Mycelium grows into or around the food source, and then it secretes enzymes that digest the food externally, and then the mycelium absorbs the already digested nutrients. So yeah, it's doing its own thing. Okay, so um, part of my favorite part of growing mushrooms is that there's a mix of science and then playing outside with straw and (laughs) sawdust and all these things. Um, So we don't wear uh, street shoes in our lab, but if you want, I have a couple of uh, yeah. flip-flops you can put on. Sure. Or you can go to your socks if you'd like. Yeah. But if you want to come in, you can take a peek real quick. Okay, great. And this is the environment that we 
try to keep as sterile as possible. We actually, it's a pressurized environment. It's a positive pressure. Up here, we have a HEPA filter that's basically a flow hood of its own that, that uh, filters air before it even comes into the room. And then this is our main flow hood and we do all of our sterile work underneath of here. Oh. So it actually, pushes, pulls air through a top filter, pushes it down, and this is the same type of uh, flow hood cabinet that they would use in a microbiology lab or in a lot of uh, medical labs. Cool. Yeah. I had no idea this was even required for, for going mushrooms. Yeah, if you're going to be a full-service mushroom farm, uh, you run your own lab. We're moving through each of these chambers so Sharon can show me fungi throughout the growing process and the equipment used to grow them and do the research. Down here we have, this doesn't look that impressive, but this is uh, one of those things that's amazing to me. This is a PCR machine. Okay. And people may have heard of these because um, with COVID, PCR machines are what we actually use to test for COVID. That's the more accurate testing. But this actually helps you sequence the DNA of things. And in the mushroom world, it's been a great trend because we're able to more accurately identify strains of mushrooms. And we're learning so much through DNA technology that 10 years ago we didn't know. Wow. I think this has really helped correspond with the uptick in um, the interest in cordyceps, lion's manes, and other medicinal mushrooms as well. Very cool. And then actually one exciting thing for us is, like I said, we have this big interest in um, science and research. Uh, and this year and next year, we'll be working on uh, the feasibility of growing chicken of the woods mushrooms. We actually received a grant from the Northeastern Sustainable Agriculture Research and Education, Northeast SARE, um, to do that. So we'll be, if any of your listeners are interested, we will be uh, asking volunteers to send us samples of chicken of the woods that they harvest from the woods, and then we'll be sequencing them and trying to grow them out this year, and then next year we'll take the strongest of those strains and we'll do a second trial where we grow more of them out. There's a lot of mushrooms like Chicken of the Woods that we haven't really marketed, even though studies inside laboratories have shown us it is feasible to do it. No one's done it on a farm scale. And that's mostly just because we're really busy as mushroom farmers and you only have so much time and money to put into experimenting. Yeah. Uh, so we're for really sure. fortunate to get a grant to do that. That's so exciting. I mean, for if no other reason, we love chicken of the woods. So yeah. <laughs> it's one of my favorite mushrooms to eat. It's a just- I don't know if I've ever had it. It's, it's named chicken of the woods for a reason. <laughs> it, uh, there's two main varieties that grow in the United States and um, one of them does get very thick and, and meaty and um, uh, it's it's just a wonderful mushroom so you're kind of getting it step by step because the lab is really where everything starts we maintain liquid cultures and agar plates where we have samples of the strains that we grow mm -hmm. and when we've inoculated the substrate we move those into our incubation chamber and what the incubation chamber is doing is it's simulating what's happening underneath the ground so it's really an area that's mostly dark 
um, and you're not worrying too much about the conditions in the incubation chamber because uh, even though that mycelium needs a lot of moisture to grow, mm -hmm. you've already put that moisture into the bag with the grain or with the straw or sawdust. Right. Cool. So it's all set up. Yeah. So if you want to pop around the corner, I'll yeah. show you where that is. Oh, awesome. And I'll pop in here and show you some of the spawn and some of the uh, grow bags. Okay. You can see we've got a lot of bags in here. Yeah. A lot of stuff going on. Wow. <laughs> bags and jars. Uh, <clears throat> this is an example of blue oyster spawn. Okay. You can kind of see the, sh the shape of the rye berries in some of the areas still, but this is a fully inoculated, fully colonized bag of spawn. Yeah. This is a second generation. We have that marked on here. Um, so this we probably will put into one more generation of grain, and then it'll go into either straw or a sawdust bag. Okay. And one thing of spawn like this, it, um, it grows exponentially basically. Oh, wow. So that's why we start our first generation in a jar, and that one quart jar can go to seven or more bags, five pound bags of grain. So um, then that's an example of the second generation here. Once we divide this, we'll put this into at least seven bags this size. Oh, wow. And then we'll have that much spawn to go into our substrate, and we put that into our substrate at at least a 10% ratio of spawn to substrate. Once we finished in the lab, Sharon showed me around the property more and we walked over to a creek they have running through the land. What went into picking this property and like in this location? Well, one thing was just what was in our budget. Right. We wanted to be close. I grew up where we started our farm, about 17 miles from here. Oh, okay. Actually, on the property where we started uh, our farm last year. Yeah. And uh, I wanted to be close to that property because it's my home place. We're still gonna be active there. Yeah. Um, I've been building gardens there and planting perennials for years, so, oh. <laughs> you know, can't leave that behind. Yeah, you've been uh, investing in that piece of land. Yeah. This property has a creek, which oh, was, is great. When you grow mushrooms on logs, you yeah. actually dunk them in water to rehydrate the log. And it's one of the ways to let the mushrooms know it's time to come out and grow and spread your spores. Cool. You actually, uh, um, with shiitakes and with some other varieties, dunk them in water for a period of time and cold water is better. And then you give them a good hit and it tells them, oh, my uh, I've, my limb might have fallen out of this tree mm -hmm. and now I'm saturated in, on the ground. And so now it's time to propagate. Oh, wow. um, and um, what sort of barriers did you face in trying to start this farm? It could either be like, you know, trying to run it sustainably or anything. Yeah, I think, you know, throughout my early and mid-20s when uh, I knew I wanted to move back to West Virginia because it was important to me um, to come back and make a positive influence here. We're a very impoverished area and mm -hmm. I am from here. I know the issues that everybody deals with. Uh, I thought for years when I'm by the time I'm 30 I'm gonna move back and, and make a farm that didn't happen till I was 35 mm -hmm. so some of those barriers were financial uh, some of them were just waiting for that technology to evolve and kind of watching the industry um, and then we've also 
face some barriers uh, being a queer couple in rural America. Um, some things have been more blatantly discriminatory uh, in other times we just have, um, uh, you know, kind of a sense that maybe the reason we didn't, something didn't work out <laughs> is uh, right. because of the way somebody perceived us and, and felt about our lifestyle. Yeah. Um, how do you feel that, you know, being a sustainable farm, how can that have a positive impact, do you think, for some of those social issues? You know, as a small farm, you can only make so much of an impact, negative or positive, just because yeah, scale. <laughs> uh, that's your yeah, that's your resources, that's your scale. Um, and I want to make as much of a positive impact as possible. I think through education and making our product available at a reasonable price, which we've strived to do, we are getting information out there about how to grow your own mushrooms. That's something we're very passionate about. We sell a lot of grow your own products and we try to educate people as much as possible. And I think that fungus has so much to teach us. When people learn just a little bit about it, it kind of opens that window. And a lot of people end up wanting to learn more and it gives them a different perspective on nature and on their uh, ecology. And I, uh, I do have a specific interest in connecting marginalized populations with nature. And even though I've worked very hard, me and my wife have worked very hard to make this happen, we also know that we have certain privilege in life that has given us a step up. Um, and we do plan, we actually have a a five meter bell tent <laughs> that we actually mostly want to make that available to marginalized populations or people who really don't necessarily feel safe to come to a place to spend time in nature so that they can come out for free or for a few dollars, stay on our land, and we can help be a guide to them to some of the local nature. We're right near the CNO Canal, which is a beautiful bike path. Uh, we're avid hikers and we know all the trails in the area and um, I have worked in experiential education and wilderness education and things of that nature and I've seen that kind of first time someone has that connection with nature and that sparkle in their eye and to me there's nothing more valuable in the world uh, than, than that connection so I think that a lot of queer people a lot of people of color don't feel comfortable coming to rural areas, um, so they miss out on that opportunity. Almost everybody I know who gets that that spark in their eye and that connection uh, starts to try to find more nature and integrate it in their family activities. And to me, that's just, it's amazing. It's amazing what it can do for people's mental and physical health. Absolutely. That's amazing. I really admire you for trying to do that because I just think that's so important. Yeah, I really hope to expand it and make it something that's an opportunity for anybody who wants to take us up on it. Yeah, well, thank you so much for taking the time to show me around. Thanks for coming out. Yeah, I'd love to have you back again. Next time on The Farmers I Know, we're going even western to Fayetteville, West Virginia, where a young farmer inspired by authors like Michael Pollan sparks change in a rural part of West Virginia. Until then, you can follow along on Instagram or Twitter at The Farmers I Know. If you have a minute, consider rating and subscribing to the show. Thank you so much for listening.